greatly appreciate the instrumentalists rehearsing on Saturdays so they can be here to share with us on Sunday mornings. A lot of ministry happens, you know, throughout the week. It's not apparent unless you hang out here a lot. This place is a busy, busy place. Seven days a week it's going. Somebody's here doing something. And oftentimes we're the recipients of the blessing of all of that without really having any understanding at all of what goes into it. And and I know they do it for the glory of God. They don't do it for the praise of men. And I don't offer them praise in an attempt to rob what God is going to give them in terms of a commendation of a well-done, good and faithful servant. These last few weeks have been really interesting for me. I had the opportunity to have lunch with two different Christian missionaries who are shortly on their way to the country of Israel. One of them is a Jewish, is Jewish by, by birth, he and his wife. The other is Russian. They both speak Hebrew. And they're heading over to that country. And there are amazing things happening in Israel right now. It is indeed the, the focal point, really, of, of human history. It all began there in the Fertile Crescent, and it is going to come to its conclusion there for sure. But there are definitely some exciting things happening over there. This young fellow from Russia is heading over there to work with students, preaching the gospel among college students. And this other couple is heading to work with Jewish immigrants that are, that are coming into the land of Israel to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and plant churches there in the nation of Israel. And I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but evangelism is illegal in, in Israel. It is against the law to do this. But they are heading in, and the exciting thing for this couple is the fact that because they are of Jewish descent, they are going to be able to have joint citizenship. They will hold American and Israeli citizenship, which opens up various avenues of ministry for them there in that country. Both of these men confirmed to me something that was incredible for me when I heard it. And that is that there are now more Jews, listen to this, there are now more Jews living in Israel than in all other countries of the world combined. This is the first time, the first time since the scattering of the people under Nebuchadnezzar. That that's been true. There has been been an outpouring of immigration back into Israel. And it it is intensifying. It is growing in number. Even in the last few years. Such there are now more Jews living in the land than outside the land. It's incredible. this This man was telling me as they work with these immigrants that are coming in many of whom arrive with just a suitcase in their hand and the clothes on their back. And they'll ask them, why are you here? What is drawing you back to Israel? You don't have a job. You don't have a place to live. You've left everything in the country from which you've come and you're arriving here. What is it? Why are you coming? And the answer is, we don't really know. We just feel drawn Back to the ancient homeland. Both men also tell me that the openness of these immigrants to the message that Yeshua is their Messiah is great. So great, in fact, that the Orthodox rabbis there in Israel are very concerned and are aggressively doing counter evangelism. fascinating. This rapid increase in population, by the way, is what is aggravating the settlements problem that you hear about on the news. The settlements in the West Bank, which is the ancient land of of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank of the Jordan River. 
The reason the settlements are growing and it is such a problem is because of the massive influx of immigration. It seems for sure that God has turned up the spotlight on the ancient homeland. I can't help but be reminded of what the prophet Ezekiel said 2,600 years ago. When he wrote in chapter 36 of his prophecy, beginning in verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Those are the terms of the new covenant. Promised to the ancient people. Now, the new covenant has not come to pass for the nation as a whole yet, to be sure. And I don't want to interpret the scriptures with a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in another, trying to match up every single event. I think that's a recipe for disaster. And yes, it would be possible for somehow the people to be pushed back out of that ancient homeland for the nation of Israel to cease to exist as it now does without disrupting the prophecies of God. That's possible. But at the same time, but at the same time, I can't help but observe the amazing turns of events Providential turns of events since 1948. It is clearly something dramatic when for the first time in 2,500 years, there are now more Jews living in the ancient homeland than outside it. We are in the last days. That I can say with biblical certainty because the apostles tell us that. We are in the last days. Beloved, things are happening. Things are happening in the world. And so this summer, we are committing ourselves to taking a look at seven prophetic events that, wait, that await fulfillment. We're back to the series again after our little detour for Father's Day. And we are back to talking about the first of those seven prophetic events, which we call the rapture of the church, the snatching away the church. The first of those seven events. And as we are working through this together, we're broken it down into ten reasons why we believe and teach that this catching away of the people of God, the church, will occur before the time of tribulation, that time of unprecedented horror that is poured out on this planet in a series of judgments that originate from the throne room of God. In your worship folder, I've included a two-page insert. I've done this for you to take home with you. I suppose you could look at it as we go. And the reason I've done this is because admittedly what we're looking at here is difficult. It requires us to piece together many, many passages of Scripture, many prophecies, and to reason together to think through the implications of some of these prophetic statements. So I've reproduced for you in abbreviated form the first nine reasons. We will cover the tenth reason next week, Lord willing. And this week we're going to be looking at reasons seven, eight, and nine, but I thought I'd go ahead and put them on the sheet for you anyway. 
you now have essentially my notes for this morning. I'm not going to, I'm going to discipline myself not to review the first six reasons. You have to do that on your own. Instead, what I'm going to do is jump right into that seventh reason. I'm presupposing the first six. I I hope you've been here to hear them. Or if you've been unable to be here, I I hope you've made use of our website to either stream it or download it and, and listen to it at a time that's convenient to you. Because these reasons build on each other. They they are a united answer to the question. Like building a, a jigsaw puzzle. Every piece fits together and locks in and then we see the whole picture. I also realize that I'm presupposing a, a certain level of understanding of a number of things that we have not yet even covered. We haven't covered the tribulation. We haven't covered the millennium. We haven't covered the rise of the man of lawlessness or the man of sin, the Antichrist. I know those things. And yet I'm still forced to talk about some of them. So to the extent that you have some pre-understanding, great. To the extent that you don't, hang on. I'm also trying to define terms as I go so I don't leave people in the dust. So here we are, seventh reason. Seventh reason why we believe and teach that the rapture, the snatching away of the church, occurs before the great tribulation or before the tribulation period, the seven year tribulation period. So I direct your attention to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you're using a Pew Bible this morning, page 1078. I'll try to call out page numbers as we go, at least for the major passages. I say this to anyone, if, you, if you're falling behind, then just jot down the reference so you don't miss the big point. Because of the promise of John 14, 1 through 3, the seventh reason why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, there's a background, obviously, that, are, that uh, precedes John chapter 14. Let me just set that for you very quickly. John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then John begins to narrate this portion of what's called the upper room, the upper room discourse. That is the private meeting of Jesus with his 12 disciples on the night in which he was crucified prior to his arrest. That's the context in which John 14 occurs. It's there, alone, it's in the room. By the time John 14 actually comes, Judas has already left to do his evil deed, and so is Jesus and the remaining 11. Furthermore, I direct your attention to verses 36 and 37 in chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus has said that he's going away. Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. So there is a sense of agitation in the heart. And that's important to understand here. A sense of agitation in the heart of these remaining 11 disciples. That this this man whom they followed, whom they become persuaded is for sure the Messiah of Israel, the very son of God. And whom they are expecting any moment to bring in his kingdom that had long been foretold by the prophets. They're expecting it to occur at any time and on the eve of what seems like his height of greatest popularity. Remembering Sunday, this is this is occurring Thursday evening. Sunday, he enters the city in the triumphal entry. The throngs are throwing their their cloaks and the palm branches before him. They're saying, hail to the to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a tremendous outcry. He has bested the religious leaders in open combat, verbal combat among the temple grounds for the for Monday and Tuesday. The crowds have gone home on a silent Wednesday to think about his message. And so the last 
thing the disciples are aware of is he is at the height of his popularity and it appears that any moment now the kingdom will come and he says, I'm leaving. That's the scene. I'm leaving. And they're shattered. They don't know what to make of it. Now, John chapter 14. Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Stop right there. Jesus is promising to leave his disciples to go and to prepare a place for them in the father's house to return and take them to go with him back to that father's house. That's an amazing promise. It is exceedingly important here as we think about this promise to note what Jesus did not say as well as what he did say. It is exceedingly important to realize or to note that Jesus did not say that the purpose of his future coming to receive the believers is so that he can be where they are on earth. Take a look at it again. I come, I will come again, verse 3, and will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. His purpose in returning is not so he can be where they are. His purpose in returning is so that they can be where he is. In heaven. In heaven. This is the teaching of our Lord from his lips about the rapture of the church. A doctrine that is made more clear to which more information is added as further revelation spills out from the mouth of God, primarily through the Apostle Paul. What I want to do is ask you to somehow keep your thumb or something here in John chapter 14 and turn to the right and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1183, if you're using a pew Bible. And I want to note with you the similarity between these two events. That you might come to understand that they're both speaking of the same event. Notice, and maybe what I'll do is I'll just go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Take a look with me at the similarity between these events. First, notice that they both involve a descent from heaven. John chapter 14 and verse 3. I will come again. Come again from where? Well, from his father's house, verse 2. The place where he has just said he's going away to. So they both involve a descent from heaven. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from where? Heaven. He will descend from heaven. Secondly, notice that the Lord will receive his followers unto himself. 
Verse 3, John 14, I will come again and receive you to myself. I will receive you to myself. Notice over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord will receive the, the, his followers to himself. Third, notice that the purpose of this is so that the believers can be where he is. The purpose is so they can be where he is. Back to John chapter 14, verse 13, that where I am, there you may be also. The purpose of this return is so that they may be where he is. Back to 1 Thess chapter 4, verse 17, we shall always be where? With the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. And finally, this teaching is given as a means to calm troubled hearts. It's the means to to calm troubled hearts. Verse 1 of chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. And then he spills out this teaching. The purpose is to calm your troubled hearts. Go over to chapter 4, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, do what? Comfort one another with these words. We're talking about the same event. The same event. The Lord Jesus Christ going to the Father's house to prepare a place. Then returning to receive His followers to Himself. That where He is, they may be also. Where He is, they may be also. They may join him in the air. They may join him in the air. Now, interestingly enough, and this doesn't prove anything, I realize, but it's still fascinating nonetheless. There's an amazing correspondence to a first century Jewish marriage ceremony. It kind of ties these two passages together and many others. Again, I've reproduced it for you, but let me just walk you through it quickly. In a first century Jewish village, a marriage was conducted in a way that was different than what you or I are familiar with. There was what was called a betrothal period, a betrothal period, a period in which the man and the woman were considered married in all legal aspects, except that the marriage had not been physically consummated. Typically, that period would last about a year. The the betrothal process would begin typically as follows. The groom, the prospective groom, would leave the father's house and would travel to the bride's house and would negotiate the bride price. There was a certain price that had to be paid. I was a father of three daughters. That is very appealing. (laughs) It would be her dowry, by the way, which her father would hold in trust for her in case something happened and her husband died. It would be her means of support. It was her life insurance policy. So there would be a bride price and it would be negotiated in advance. Interestingly enough, and I'm just going to buzz through these, but interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Very interesting. We have been bought with a price. From the moment of this, the initiation of this betrothal period, the couple, as I said, was considered legally married and the husband or the, the bride was declared to be set apart exclusively for her husband. She is set apart for him. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just verse 11. Paul talking about the Corinthian believers there, he said, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, literally, but you were set apart. You were set apart. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25, 27, likens the human marriage to the 
relationship between Christ and his church. The bride is set apart. Beyond that, the marriage covenant itself is sealed and symbolized by the bride and the groom drinking from the same cup of wine over a betrothal benediction that has been pronounced. It has interesting possibilities with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember, in that upper room that night, it was Jesus and his disciples who shared this common cup of wine. After the betrothal was established, the groom would leave the bride, giving her time to prepare for married life, and he would return to the father's house in order to prepare a dwelling for the new couple. He would go back to his father's house. She would remain in her father's house. She would get ready for marriage. He would be getting ready for marriage by preparing a place to take his bride to where they might live. John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. Where? In the Father's house. At the end of the betrothal period, this is where it gets really interesting. At the end of the betrothal period, the groom would return, usually at night. He would proceed to the bride's house, accompanied by his best men and other male escorts. This would normally be a torchlight procedure through the village. A marriage, by the way, would be a very public event. Though the bride would be expecting the groom to return, the actual moment of his return is unknown. There's no clocks. There's no watches. So she's looking for him to return. She, she expects there's a sense of eminency for his return. It's going to be at any time, but when? She's not sure. So as a result of this, when the, when the groom is arriving, he is preceded with a shout that warns the bride to be ready. He's coming. You can see this, by the way, in Matthew chapter 25, page 987 on a pew Bible. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's just interesting. Matthew 25. Verse 1, And the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Verse 5, and all the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Verse 6, this is the interesting. But at midnight there was a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. He's here. Of course, the parable talks about some that have foolishly not prepared and they miss out on it. Once the groom and his party had come to receive his bride and, and her attendants, they would all proceed back to the father's house. It would be like a big parade, torchlight parade through the city streets. They would return to the father's house, and there the wedding guests would be assembled. They'd all be assembled there. And upon arrival at the father's house, the bride, her face would still be veiled, And she and the groom would be escorted into the bridal chamber where they would remain in seclusion for seven days while they consummated the marriage. During that period of time, the wedding guests would be celebrating the marriage. If I might be permitted to continue the analogy, those wedding guests appear to me to nicely correspond with the Old Testament saints. Those believers of the Old Testament who had died and gone to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Seven days they would remain in seclusion while the marriage is consummated. Interestingly enough, Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, referring to what's called the 70th week of Daniel, also what is known commonly to us as the tribulation period, speaks of a seven-year period of time in which the church is absent, secluded, hidden away from view. After the seven days of hiding, the groom and the bride emerge and the bride is unveiled so that all can see her. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, I'm offering it only to you as an analogy. I'm not saying that this proves the point. All I'm suggesting to you is there is a remarkable correlation between what was commonly known to the people of that day and the events as laid out in prophetic scripture. But let me drive the point home, I think, of this whole argument here in the seventh argument, John 14. If the rapture of the church, if the catching away of the church occurs at the end of the seven years of tribulation, then it is pointless for Christ to go and to prepare a place in the Father's house. When at his second coming, he is returning to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Why go there and prepare a place if no one's going to go there? If all that's going to happen is they're going, the church is going to be caught up to meet him in the clouds and then they're going to come right back to the earth, why waste your time preparing a place in the Father's house that, that the text indicates we're going to share in at some form or fashion? Someone might postulate to me, well, that it's, it's, it's the New Jerusalem. It's the heavenly city of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I don't think so. Those come as a result of the new heavens and the new earth. It appears to me it makes far better sense that if the church is caught away before the tribulation, that they then go back to the Father's house where they await the outpouring of wrath on the earth and then come together, returning to that earth. Eight, the eighth reason. The eighth reason. The eighth reason is an argument of silence. Those of you who know logic, familiar with logic, would say to me that an argument of silence is no argument at all. My response would be that this is a silence that screams. An argument of silence. What am I talking about? It takes us into the book of Revelation into the book of Revelation and requires us to make some observations from that book. And the result of those observations, I believe, lends definite support and evidence to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. The very first of those comes in the simple observation that the common New Testament term for church, ecclesia, is used 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Nineteen times we see the word church used over and over again. The church, the church, the church, the church. And then it disappears from the book. And it does not make its reappearance in the book again until Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. Speaking about the ultimate purpose of the book of Revelation, it is written to the churches. This book is for the churches. This book is for us. But fascinatingly enough, even though this book is for us, a substantial portion of the book makes no mention of us. I think it's more than just interesting that if the church is going through, if if the, the in Christ follower or believers, if you and I are going to be going through this incredibly horrible, horrific seven years of judgment, that there is not one bit of counsel to us as to how we might live in the midst of all of this. It's absolutely silent about our role in this huge drama. No counsel at all. Furthermore, it is a worthy observation, I believe, that in Revelation chapter 7 and, ver and chapter 14, when people are mentioned as being on the earth specifically, they're called Jews, 
144,000 Jews, 12,000 drawn from each tribe. Revelation chapter 12, we're introduced to the vision of the woman who gives birth to the male child, the Christ, making the woman clearly Israel. Let me add one more. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9. In fact, let me do it this way. Let me go in reverse order. Let me take you back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, page 1226. Page 1226. Yeah, let's go in this order. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've read all of those for you so that you might have that locked into your mind. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. There's something missing. There's something missing from that expression. What is missing? What the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Now, I admit it on the front side, this is an argument from silence. But it is nonetheless something that must be answered. It must be answered. From chapter 6 through chapter 19, in which John, the apostle, writes out his revelation, his vision that he has seen of the horrific judgment coming upon the earth for seven years, in excruciating detail, there is no mention of the, of the role of the church in that at all. I would consider that more of more than of passing notice. Number nine. Reason number nine. We believe and teach in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because it provides time for the Bema Seat judgment of the church. The Bema Seat judgment. If you like Bema, that's okay. It's pronounced Bema. But if you like Bema, you keep calling it that. When I think of a Bema, I think of a BMW. <laughs> right? This may be a concept that is new for some of you. This is worthy of a sermon in and of itself, and we're not going to do that, but let me just briefly trace it with you. Let's begin in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, page 1137. The word bema is just a Greek word, by the way. It is a Greek word. And it means a judicial bench or place of judgment. It's a little platform, a little raised dais upon which a judge would stand. It's used that way in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 16, if you want to look sometime and see it there. It is often used in the context of athletic games, and it speaks of the raised platform upon which the victorious athletes would stand in order to receive their laurel crown. The place where their, their 
athletic endeavor is judged and rewarded. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother or you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? Here it is. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, he is writing to Christians. This is a letter to a church in Rome. And he is saying that Christians, all of them, will stand before the judgment seat of God. Go to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, page 1157. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. The apostle writes again, For we must all, by the way, he's writing to another church, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Whether good or bad. Now, bad here is not speaking about a moral evil. The, the Greek word used for bad here could be translated worthless. That would be a good translation. Worthless. The deeds in the body, what we have done, whether they are good or whether they are worthless. We turn you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 10, page 1142, Paul says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, let's pull it together here. Paul, writing to churches, say to those churches that all the believers, and he's writing to more than one church and saying the same thing, so we're safe to to understand that to be referring to all of us, all of us, will stand before Jesus Christ and have our lives evaluated, judged. Not for our sin, whether we enter into the presence of God eternally or cast into the lake of fire or not. That was settled on Calvary's cross. Right? All of your sin was atoned for, was paid for, was covered in the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ if you have embraced Him by faith. So there is no eternal judgment for you. There is a great white throne judgment coming, and it is for the unbeliever. We'll speak of that later. But my life and your life is going to be judged and evaluated. And depending, Paul uses the, the, the picture of a fire. As your life goes through the fire of the judgment, that which is gold and silver and precious stones comes out the other side and is worthy of reward. That which is not is consumed in the fire. Yet you yourself escape. Let me add one more scripture for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. 
It's down the bottom of the page, hopefully. Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before when the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose. Here it is. The motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What is it that is going to be judged as the basis of either good or worthless? It is your motive. It is the motive behind what it is you have done. What is motivating your life? Why do you do what you do? Why are you involved in the ministry that you're involved in? Why do you serve the people of God in the area that you serve them? Why do I preach? Why am I preaching this sermon? Why are you sharing the gospel with your family or friends? Why are you coming here early on a Saturday morning to rehearse and play for us? Why do you volunteer to serve in the kitchen to help prepare a meal for some fellowship activity that we're having together? Why do you empty the trash when no one sees? Why do you mop the floors? Why do you give when the offering plate is passed? Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Is it self-glorification? Or is it God's glory? That's what's going to be judged. Every single thing will be brought to light. He will disclose the motives of our hearts. And those things that have been done for His glory will be worthy of praise. Those things that have been done to make us look good, to make us feel good, to be observed by anyone other than God, will be consumed in the fire. A person's life and ministry may look great on the outside. Maybe a very public figure, maybe, a, maybe one of these celebrity preachers. Thousands hanging on every word. Massive church over which he has leadership responsibilities. But if what he does is done out of a desire for self-glorification... It is worthless. It will not withstand the judgment fire. It will be consumed. And staying with that analogy, the little pastor, unknown, no radio ministry, no television, little congregation of 25 people in the middle of Kansas, never going to write a book, won't even be on the Internet, don't even record the sermons. faithfully preaching the Word of God to that little flock may well receive a greater commendation than the most famous celebrity Christian preacher you can think of. Do not judge before the time, Paul says. Do not go on passing judgment, verse 5, before the time. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden and disclose the motives of the heart. I can't judge, and I'm not judging. You can't judge me, and I cannot judge you. I do not know why you do what you do. Paul will even say there's a certain sense. He's not sure. He knows fully why he does what he does. I can identify with that, by the way. I don't trust my own heart in this matter at all. It is very likely that I'm doing what I'm doing in some degree because I like it for my own benefit. I'd be a liar if I didn't admit such things. I'm not proud of those things. I'm ashamed of those things. I wish they were not true of me. I pray to God that He would deliver me from such things. But I'm realistic enough to know 
that there's some measure of it there. And I also know it's true of you. It's true of you. When it comes to the eternal rewards, which, by the way, according to Revelation chapter 4, right, they're going to be crowns cast at the, the feet. We give it all back to Christ because anything of any value, anything that survives the fire came from Him to begin with. See, if it came from me, it came from you, it's going to get consumed. You've got nothing to give back. The only thing you're going to give back is what He gave you in the first place. You're going to throw it at His feet. It's all from Him. Based not so much on what we do. That's the point. Not what we do, but why we do it. Why do you do what you do? I told you this could be a great sermon. Just on this. Why do I believe that this is evidence for a pre-tribulational rapture? One of the reasons I believe this is evidence for it is because it seems to fit so well with that seven-year period of seclusion when the church has been brought to the Father's house. A time to have their ministry evaluated before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Because the next events on the prophetic calendar is the return of Christ for the establishment of his millennial kingdom when he takes his throne in Jerusalem. And there just doesn't seem to be any time for the judgment then. Because according to the scriptures, the judgments that occur then are the sheep and the goat judgment. And those who fail the sheep and the goat judgment go into the everlasting fire. So it appears to me that this well-taught doctrine, the judgment of the evaluation of the work of a Christian, fits very nicely into the seven-year period when Christ has removed His church from earth, brought them to the Father's house, and will evaluate them. At that point... They will be ready to return with Him and reign, the Apostle Paul says, with Him. 1 Corinthians 6. When we started this series, I gave you an introduction. And with that introduction, I listed eight reasons why it was important for us to study prophecy together. Since I preached that sermon, I've come up with another, a ninth reason. You'll get that next week. The more I think about it, the more reasons I come up with. But one of the eight reasons that I originally shared with you is because the study of prophecy encourages us to invest in eternity. It encourages us to invest in eternity. You know, God has given every one of us, He's given every one of us time, talent, and treasure. 24 hours a day, every one of us, same allotment of time. The most productive and the most unproductive, same allotment, same stewardship. He has given talent that he has not evenly dispersed. Clearly. You just look at me and you would know that. Someday I'm going to be able to sing. For now, I will stand in the front row and... Make a loud noise. There's been an uneven dispersal of, of talent, and there's been an uneven dispersal of treasure, clearly. But all have been given some. And the temptation is to either hoard it or waste it. To hoard it or waste it. To hoard our time or waste our time. To hoard our talents or waste our talents. To hoard our treasure or waste our treasure. That's the temptation. Rather than invest it in things of eternal significance. This is one of the reasons why you have to be here. It's one of the critical reasons why you must be here whenever possible. That the only time you should be away is when there is events that make it inevitable, or or not inevitable, but make it unavoidable for you to be here. Because together, together, we can help each other fight 
off the temptation to live as if this life is all there is. All week long, you are being bathed in the lie that this is it. Beloved, this is not it. This is not it. This world is passing. And maybe a whole lot sooner than many think. We need to have our our thinking corrected. And I need you to correct my thinking and you need me to correct yours. And together around the word as we worship, our vision of the risen Christ is renewed. And our priorities begin to fall into line. He's coming again. Amen? Maybe really soon. And that leads me to my... final admonition. There are some of you here this morning who are not ready for His return. You are not ready. Should the Lord Jesus Christ descend now, today, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, you are not ready. Some of you are not ready because you do not know Jesus Christ. You know about him. You know certain things about him, but you do not know him. You are not personally Related to him. You are not united to him by faith. His sacrifice is not your sacrifice. You are depending upon your own good works to earn your merit before your maker. And it is going to fail. It is going to fail. The standard is perfection. That is the standard. If you want to be weighed before God, the standard is perfection. If you fall short of perfection in, at any level and in any degree, you cannot stand. You need a Savior. You need someone to rescue you. Someone who can and did and will stand in the judgment. Someone perfect. Whose perfect righteousness can be given to you. That one is Jesus Christ. It is, he is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Savior of the world for all who will have Him. If you will give up on your own attempt at righteousness and you will humble your heart and call out on God to be merciful to you, a sinner, believing that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected on your behalf, The Bible says you will be saved. The Bible also says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. You have no promise of tomorrow. There are others of you who know Jesus Christ, but your life has veered off track. You've made a hash of things. You're living now as if you don't know Him. Or as if he is but a mere small portion of your life. You are not ready to meet him. The scripture warns us that if we are not ready, we will shrink back at his coming. Do not be found among those who shrink back. When you go through the fire in the evaluation before the Bama Seat of Christ... Let not your whole life be consumed and so there is nothing left. Today is the day. Today is the day. Give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to live for His glory and not yours. Recognizing that anything good you do comes from Him to begin with and will be given back to Him. This is not a competition. 
But it is a race. And all who run faithfully and finish the race will receive a crown. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Let's pray. Our Father, this doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is so necessary and helpful for the purity of your church. So important to us, our Father, to enable us to realign our thinking. To overcome the foolishness of the world that bombards us. Live in this 24-7 news cycle. There's no relief, no rest. And Father, like a, like a fish swimming in a cesspool, we're constantly ingesting the filth. May Your Spirit use His Word to cleanse our hearts even now. With the saints of old, we say, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Amen.